I'm John McKee, and I'm the editor of Messianic Apologetics. www.messianicapologetics.net And I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Messianic Insider. Today, we begin a multi-part series. Cherry-picked verses out of context? Which I am sure you are going to find both fascinating as well as challenging. But before we get into our subject matter, I have two brief announcements. First of all, I hope you all are appreciating the new Messianic Theology Explained episodes. We started last week. It is my intention to see these posted bi-weekly. So, on average, on Tuesday, Messianic Theology Explained, Wednesday, Messianic Insider, and then on Thursday, another Messianic Theology Explained. Now, I'm sure we'll have to sort through that uh, in the future at some point, but basically that is what my intention is. So you get two many episodes of Messianic Theology Explained every week and a larger episode, Messianic Insider. Also, two weeks ago, we had our first Family Unfiltered episode of Messianic Insider, and we are working on the uh, next one sometime within the next uh, four or five weeks. Likely, after the conclusion of this miniseries, Sherry picked verses out of context. Cherry-picked verses out of context has been uh, something I have had in my notes since early fall, uh, probably since the fall high holidays. Uh, Frequently when I am working, the Lord will have me just pause for a moment and write down an idea on a post-it, and then it will quickly get incorporated into some more formal notes Uh, And then I'll be prompted to consider this or consider that. And depending on how controversial the subject matter is, there might be a wait time in order to sort through details and more than anything else, work out any inappropriate emotions. Because when you consider something like cherry-picked versus out of context, you are frequently coming against someone's uh, theological credo, uh, someone's theological mantra. I don't like the term mantra. You're coming against a sacred cow. You may even be coming against a theological idol. And uh, that is something which has to be approached very carefully if you intend people to reevaluate their beliefs, to make adjustments, and to make improvements uh, to their theology. 
Interpreting the Bible properly is something which is a huge matter in theology. We started out. Messianic theology explained by discussing how certain people may come to certain interpretations. But for all of us, we need to be very careful not to just read a passage, read a verse, and then form an entire doctrinal system around it. We instead have to be able to read larger portions of Holy Scripture. In fact, uh, when I was in seminary, two huge things which were stressed were, number one, make sure that at least at some point in your experience, not just as a spiritual leader, a pastor, a teacher, but even a layperson, number one, make sure you have surveyed every book of the Bible. You've sat down and you've read in a single sitting the book of Genesis, and you've kept a log of the different people and places and events and questions you have. That is absolutely vital. And then along with that, be able to then go back and use various inductive Bible study skills in examining a particular passage. Very quickly, you're going to find that a number of the things you believe may not have as strong a basis as you think they do, because your beliefs are based in a verse cherry-picked out of context, plucked out of context, a half verse, a statement, and you need to provide some kind of a better framework for, okay, what was the original setting in which the statement was made? What were the issues being addressed? Uh, one book, which I haven't looked at for quite some time, but we did use this in seminary, was Bible Study That Works by David L. Thompson. And it's very small. It's not a huge book. But uh, this is something which definitely challenged me in my uh, formal days of theology to think a little more deeply regarding some of these matters. Because it's very different for someone to think theologically than think reflectively. Many people, and I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't speak to you through his word, but many people look at Holy Scripture reflectively. They don't look at Holy Scripture theologically. So they're just looking at a passage here, a verse there, a statement, whatever it is, and they're trying to find some kind of an answer or solace to their human need. Now, the Bible, of course, speaks profoundly to human needs. But when you think theologically, you are thinking in terms of God working in history, God saving ancient Israel from catastrophe. And of course, if God can save ancient Israel from catastrophe, Surely he can save me, he can save my family from catastrophe. God's character is something which is immutable throughout the ages. And indeed, when you begin to think more theologically, you begin to develop a deeper fear 
and a deeper reverence for our creator. You just don't approach God as some kind of a cosmic vending machine. I mean, I remember when I was in elementary school at the Christian school and, you know, before every test, uh, the class would, would, would pray, somebody would pray, Lord, uh, make sure that we all do well on this test and we all get good grades. That is kind of approaching God as a cosmic vending machine, as opposed to, Lord, in your word, you saved King David, you saved Paul through this disaster they were facing. Please, as your servant today, see me through this and deliver me through uh, this uh, potential problem. When you are able to appeal to the Lord in that way, you are thinking more theologically. Cherry-picking a verse or a statement from a passage of Holy Scripture, even a verse of Holy Scripture, is something which we have all done. I am guilty of it. You are guilty of it. We know many people who have done this. Cherry-picking a verse or statement, and then from that, forming an entire belief or an opinion about a particular issue, or even a system of beliefs, or even a religious movement can make this subject matter, cherry-picked verses out of context, not only difficult, but very controversial. Not only because you're likely to be forced to you know, maybe I need to go back and reread this. Maybe I need to go look at some of the surrounding statements. Maybe I need to consider context a little better. Maybe I have made some inappropriate conclusions. That can be very difficult to sort through. And hopefully, regardless of what the issue or topic has been, when we have been challenged to, are you sure you didn't take that statement out of context? Are you sure that verse which you keep quoting to me hasn't been cherry-picked, plucked out, and there aren't some surrounding statements which need to be considered? That can be very difficult for some people because we've all done this, and it's humbling to have to go back, reread, reevaluate, and then make some corrections. Um, and indeed, uh, the purpose of this mini-series, cherry-picked verses out of context, is so we can see some of the limitations out there, hopefully make some corrections, and hopefully learn and do better in the future. Now, as I've been sorting through this uh, cherry-pick verses out of a context subject matter, there are two principal examples of this I would like us to consider for today. One of them from the Tanakh or Old Testament, and another from the Apostolic Scriptures or New Testament. And I think it's fairly reasonable to conclude that all of us have encountered these two examples at 
some point, not just in our faith experience, but perhaps even in our messianic experience. And I'd like to start by reading to you Hosea 11, 9c. So that means I'm going to offer you a very short quote at first. Hosea 11, 9c says, For I am God and not man. New American Standard. Any one of you who has encountered Jewish anti-missionaries, those who are out there strongly opposing the messiahship of Yeshua of Nazareth, have encountered Hosea 9, excuse me, Hosea 11, 9c quoted. God is not a man. Hosea 11, 9 says so, right? God is not a man, therefore traditional Christianity is wrong to make the conclusion that Jesus is God. So what do you do about that kind of a statement? Oh, God isn't a man. You know, I believe in a theological foundation in the Tanakh. Maybe the New Testament authors screwed up in ascribing some kind of divine status to Yeshua of Nazareth. God is not a man, right? I cannot tell you how many people have stopped right there and not bothered to go back and do a little more detailed reading of Hosea chapter 11. Because more is stated in Hosea 11. There's a context which needs to be taken into consideration. So let's look at Hosea 11 verses 8 and 9 in total. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One of Israel in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Hosea 11, verses 8 and 9, New American Standard. Now here, you're given a little more context regarding what the statement, God is not a man, actually involves a statement regarding whether or not the God of creation can take on human form and interact with his human creations, i.e. in the incarnation of Yeshua of Nazareth. That is not the issue here. The issue here concerns whether or not the God of Israel is going to execute fierce anger upon the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, and whether or not he's going to completely destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And so, to that specific matter, 
you see in Hosea 11, 9c, for I am God and not man, continuing the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So what that requires intelligent Bible readers to recognize is how God is not a man involves the character of God. God, because of his compassion, his mercy, his deep concern, and his love, ultimately, is not going to completely wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel or Ephraim. God is not a man is specified to involve God's character. And indeed, one of the important aspects of inductive Bible study is not only being able to reevaluate, in this case, where a statement has been plucked out of context, cherry-picked, and you can go back in, and here, we've just used English. We haven't gotten into any original language matters. And to see that there's more in view, it's pretty obvious. God is not a man concerns God's character. Now, an important part of inductive Bible study, one of the first steps is to actually see wh where and how different Bible versions might translate this or render this. We use New American Standard here, which is the most frequently used, I would say, evangelical Protestant version in the Messianic community. I've got my New Interpreter Study Bible here. This is the New Revised Standard. And the New Revised Standard uses a principle known as inclusive language. So uh, things which do not have to be obviously rendered along masculine lines are not rendered along masculine lines. And while it's controversial for some, it actually opens up some important interpretational options. So Hosea 11.9c in the New Revised Standard reads with, for I am God and no mortal. So here, for I am God and no mortal, I think more clearly depicts how the character of our eternal God is different from his human creations. God can restrain himself as God because God is not a mortal. Whereas mortal powers, which would seek the destruction of Israel, the destruction of God's people, are frequently seen in Holy Scripture to be incapable of fully restraining themselves, if that makes any sense. Our second example, and you have doubtlessly heard this at some point or another in your faith experience, at least if you live in the modern world. This is from the Apostolic Scriptures or New Testament. Matthew 7, verse 1. Matthew 7, verse 1, Yeshua says, Do not judge, lest you be judged. New American Standard. Now, today, I mean, even not today, even 30 years ago, back in the mid-1990s, how many people in your religious or faith experience, especially when you might be 
observing or evaluating some kind of ungodly behavior, sinful activity, they would say, no, wait a second, Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. So who are you to comment or evaluate somebody else's life, somebody else's behavior? Do not judge. And of course, now, in 2024, especially with wokeism, exvangelical, affirming, what have you, how many internet memes, how many popular celebrities, uh, especially those who have embraced some kind of progressive Christianity, are you going to see, quote, Matthew 7, 1? Do not judge, lest you be judged. Who are you to say anything about someone's sexual orientation, among other things, right? Matthew 7, 1 is not a statement in isolation. There are some further statements which follow, specifying what Yeshua the Messiah actually meant. Matthew 7, 1, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge, lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So here, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, and I've read it from New American Standard. Do not judge lest you be judged. What that actually involves concerns someone's standard of judgment, the manner in which someone else's behavior is evaluated, and the need for someone who may be issuing judgment to first look at themselves and see if they have any kind of inappropriate behavior or attitudes present. This is not a blanket prohibition against speaking about sinful behavior out there or evaluating aberrant behavior out there. It rather is a stress for people to be fair and reasonable when they issue judgments, evaluations, etc. You just can't go off haphazardly, half-cocked, and start saying, you know, this person's a sinner, that person's a sinner, 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 especially when you perhaps have not done that kind of an internal evaluation on your own life. Matthew 7 one is a verse we've all seen plucked out of context, cherry-picked out of context. Matthew 7, 1 through 5 in total, stresses the manner, the standard of judgment or evaluation uh, to be uh, uh, in view. Now today with cherry-picked verses out of context. 
I have discussed two relatively straightforward examples. We've read some kind of a larger co-text, as surprising as it may be. Sometimes what a verse we've seen plucked out of context more accurately means uh, can be evaluated from reading the verses which precede or follow. I know that's kind of profound. Well, I just read some of the verses which prefaced this, or I read some of the verses which followed this, and I got a much bigger picture. I know that seems pretty profound to some of us, but actually, uh, many people do not do this. Even people who we would widely regard as being conservative Bible readers. When I was growing up, and I this would have been late 1980s, early 1990s, and I was attending Calvary Christian School in Taylor Mill, Kentucky. We memorized Bible verses in our class. It was part of our uh, curriculum. And memorizing Bible verses is a good thing. We want to have the Word of God implanted in our hearts and in our minds. But how many people just memorize verses by rote and there's no context for them. There's no, well, what did this mean just with some of the verses preceding or some of the verses following? What did this mean for the original audience, the issues they were facing, etc.? We've discussed two relatively straightforward examples, Hosea 11, verses 8 and 9, and Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. And I think all of us can have wide agreement on these. Yet, this is a multi-part series, and we are in a time, especially as it involves messianic, theological, and spiritual development, where we do need to go deeper with God's word, and we need to be willing to reevaluate some of the things we've picked up and some of the things which are out there in the world of ideas within our sphere of influence. Have people within the messianic community or messianic sphere of influence ever cherry-picked verses out of context? Oh yes, they certainly have. And they formed entire beliefs entire theological systems, and perhaps even movements or at least sub-movements out of verses which have been cherry-picked. So over the next three sessions or so, I will be discussing passages which you have doubtlessly heard quoted before, which are important for people in the independent Hebrew Roots movement, in the one law or one Torah sub-movement, as well as in sectors of Messianic Judaism, which, as far as I am concerned, have been cherry-picked out of context. Many who ascribe importance to these passages have not been willing to dig into any real detail they haven't been willing to acknowledge how other people have perhaps interpreted them. 
and they are not that willing to make adjustments and certainly not corrections to their theology. Now, some of the points, as you will see, raised by these passages, or at least what their proponents think are raised by these passages, are not unimportant. You can, out there, have a right theological point using the wrong passage. But these are things, as you will see, which get publicized and popularized out there in the world of ideas, especially on social media. And we need to perhaps pull the reins back for a moment and evaluate, have we seen Bible passages cherry-picked by people in Hebrew roots, people in one law, one Torah, people in Messianic Judaism? How much effort has truly been witnessed to dig into some details, recognize that there's some other points of view out there, and what can we learn from this? So that this is the main reason why I have held back for a number of months uh, discussing cherry-picked verses out of context, because for me someone who is an independent thinker, someone who thrives in my reading of the Bible and my theology on different third and fourth alternatives, which are frequently not acknowledged, I need to be able to address some of these passages in a way which helps and wants to see us improve in our hermeneutics, our interpretation of Scripture. So, over the next three weeks, we're going to be addressing some very hot topics. As always, on behalf of Outreach Israel Ministries and Messianic Apologetics, I would like to sincerely thank you for your continued prayers, support, and donations for all of our ministry efforts. We couldn't do this if it were not for you. We'll see you again soon with another episode of Messianic Insider. Until then, may God bless you, shalom, and take care.